Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Sam Cantor, and today I'm speaking with Jeff Friedman. He is an international relations scholar, a professor at Dartmouth University, and author of the recent book, The Commander-in-Chief Test, Public Opinion and the Politics of Image-Making in U.S. Foreign Policy. Like other professional fields, many who labor in foreign policy and national security are often dismayed by the way that their work is publicly discussed in the American political process. Throughout both election cycles and the daily political grind, politicians seem to offer foreign policy ideas that are sometimes superficial or devoid of context or framed as simple binary choices. Moreover, American politicians often seem to adapt somewhat bellicose positions and perhaps inordinately favor military interventions and high defense spending, even when those positions are at odd with public opinion. In his book, Professor Friedman offers one of the clearest answers to date for why this situation is not only understandable, but indeed why politicians are actively incentivized to take foreign policy positions that are both simple and hawkish. His data-driven argument is clear, timely, and thought-provoking, and I'm very glad to be talking with him today. So, Jeff, thank you so much for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. So let me just first ask you, what was the impetus to conduct this project and the research that you did? Yeah, there were basically two things that moved me to write the book. One was that in every, every four years when we have a presidential election, You'll often hear candidates and pundits discussing which leaders are most fit to be commander in chief. And the title of the book, The Commander in Chief Test, is a word you often hear journalists write and speak about. And and just I sort of wanted to figure out what that test is. How do voters decide which leaders are fit to be commander in chief? And how does that in turn shape the politics of US foreign policy? So I just wanted to get to the bottom of that, and and especially once I realized there wasn't a book out there on that subject already, I thought that might be a useful avenue to pursue. And then the, the second question that was in my mind as I wrote the book has to do with what's often described as a disconnect between public opinion and U.S. foreign policy. In the last five or 10 years, there has been a lot of international relations scholarship that essentially argues the U.S. foreign policy is guided by elites or the so-called foreign policy establishment in ways that are fundamentally undemocratic. And the basis for that is that if we look at many elements of U.S. foreign policy, like rising defense budgets or open-ended military interventions or unilateral diplomacy, these are consistent patterns of behavior that appear to depart from what voters consistently say they want in public opinion surveys. So that had just sort of been on the back of my mind to try to understand why is it that U.S. foreign policy is so consistently detached from voters' policy preferences. And basically, as you said in your introduction, what I argue in the book is that the dynamics of this commander-in-chief test, where presidential candidates and presidents attempt to convince voters that they have the right personal traits to be competent foreign policy leaders, steers them to make public policy choices that voters don't actually support on the merits. And before we dive into the rest of the content, I'm curious, you know, 
political science books don't necessarily feature copious amounts of statistical graphs as yours does. Is this a um, favored approach of yours towards research or was it the subject matter and having access to polling data and election data that made this research approach that was a little more numbers heavy possible? Oh, that's a great question. So I, I've always thought of myself as a mixed methods researcher in the sense that I think um, I think scholarship is most convincing when authors can marshal different forms of evidence to support an argument. And also I, I try to be a question-driven researcher. So, you know, in this case, I, I want to know how do voters decide who's fit to be commander in chief and how does that in turn shape leaders' choices? So to, to do that, I just felt the the best thing to do is to get evidence wherever it was most useful. So the, the book basically has three forms of evidence. One is survey experiments in which we can essentially ask voters to evaluate hypothetical presidential candidates. We can randomly vary those candidates' attributes, and that allows us to figure out what voters are looking for in a commander-in-chief. And then the book looks at survey data of U.S. public opinion and presidential voting going back to 1952. And that allows me to show that these patterns I document generalize across the last 60 years or 70 years of presidential politics. And then a lot of the book is um, archival evidence in which I look at the records of presidential campaigns to try to get behind the scenes of how they devise their foreign policy platforms. And there you can see candidates and their advisors strategizing about what policy platforms will allow them to present themselves as an effective commander-in-chief. So, so the book attempts to bring all those forms of evidence together to support its central argument about how the commander-in-chief test steers U.S. foreign policy in a direction that's more hawkish than, than what voters actually want. And a lot of these mixed methods you employ seem to point to the same place, which is something that you refer to as an issue image trade-off. Can you expand a little bit on what that concept is? Yeah. Thanks for asking about that. So most research on how public opinion shapes foreign policy or, or really any public policy assumes that voters have in their heads a set of policy preferences. So for example, what they want to see for defense spending or trade or the war in Afghanistan. And then they see where leaders stand on those issues and they try to, all else being equal, support the leaders whose policy views lie closest to their own. Uh, political scientists call that issue voting. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, it looks like there's relatively little of that in U.S. foreign policy, or at least that to the extent the United States has rising defense budget, open-ended military interventions, and unilateral diplomacy, it appears voters are not getting what they want on the issues. What the book argues is that while voters do care about foreign policy issues on their merits, they care more about whether presidents and presidential candidates seem like a competent commander-in-chief, that those discussions in turn revolve a lot around asking whether presidents and presidential candidates seem like strong leaders. And that generally speaking, voters are willing to sacrifice some of their policy preferences if that allows them to elect a president who they think would be a strong commander-in-chief. Now, in an ideal world, those things would go together. You'd both get the leader who adheres to your policy preferences and someone who seems like a strong leader. But part of what the book shows is that there are cases in which nominally unpopular policies help leaders cultivate reputations for strength. Rising defense budgets is a, is a good example of that. 
even though voters don't want the defense budget to go up, at least most of them in almost every public opinion survey since 1950 say they want the defense budget to remain the same or go down, they nevertheless seem to think that when leaders promise to raise defense spending, that makes them seem stronger. And you can see why that's the case. If, if you promise to raise defense spending, that allows you to talk about how you're standing up to America's adversaries or how you're promoting peace through strength or how you are more vigilant in the face of foreign threats than other leaders who are more complacent and don't think that America needs more resources to defend itself. And in those kinds of conversations, even if voters say like, hey, I'm not sure I agree with this idea that we need to spend more money on defense, they like the way that leaders sound when they talk about doing that. And that creates this trade-off, this thing you called an issue image trade-off, where voters then have to decide whether they prefer the candidate whose policies align with their preferences on the issues or the candidate who seems like they'd be a stronger commander in chief. And basically what the book shows is that voters will generally resolve that trade-off in favor of the image, that candidates know this, and that this can help explain why over the last several decades, US foreign policy has consistently led in a direction that's more hawkish than what public surveys uh, suggest voters support on the merits. And one of the interesting findings that you noted is that, we'll go ahead and edit that out, ambulance passed by. One of the interesting findings that you noted was that this issue image trade-off seems to favor hawkishness, vice, perhaps creating a perception of level-headedness or prudence. Why does that seem to be the case? Great question. So uh, one of the things I start doing in the book is, is just to see when voters and political pundits talk about who's fit to be commander-in-chief, what are the attributes that they say is part of that equation? And we could basically divide those into two categories. In an ideal world, voters would like a president who's a strong leader in the sense that they will vigorously stand up for America's interests and confront adversaries. They also want leaders who will demonstrate good judgment in the form of not taking unnecessary risks. So in principle, presidents and presidential candidates would have an incentive to craft a reputation for both of those things at once. Reputations for good judgment do matter, and there are some presidential candidates who have flunked on that dimension. The classic example of that is Barry Goldwater, in 1964, Goldwater, who's the Republicans nominee, runs for president against Lyndon Johnson. And Johnson successfully portrays him as essentially being a reckless warmonger. Some listeners may recall the so-called Daisy ad in which Johnson runs a political advertisement in which a girl is in a field picking flowers and a, and a mushroom cloud goes off behind her. And this is all attempting to convey that Goldwater can't be trusted with the nuclear codes. So voters do care about good judgment, but the, but the problem is that good judgment is really hard to evaluate. Um, what counts as a good foreign policy choice in one context might be too cautious or too reckless in another. These context-dependent decisions are hard even for experts to resolve. I mean, even with decades of hindsight, scholars often disagree about which foreign policies were good judgment or, or good luck or the reverse. So. We can't really expect voters to sort that out in real time. By contrast, I explained in the book that reputations for leadership strength are just much easier to convey. That anytime you back down to an adversary, that immediately exposes you to charges of being weak. Whereas anytime you confront an adversary, that allows you to portray yourself as being tough. Um, similarly, with defense spending, 
any proposal to cancel a weapons program exposes you to charges of complacency, whereas leaders who promise to build up America's military capabilities can project an image of strength. And I argue in the book that that much more evaluable connection between hawkish foreign policies and perceptions of leadership strength is why that dynamic dominates the commander-in-chief test. One example, an analogy I give to this in the book is to the way that car advertisements often focus on visuals like the car's exterior or little gadgets like cup holders. Um, we, we know that most car consumers don't think that those are the most important elements of the car. Like mo most customers actually want a car that runs well, but you never see car advertisements focusing on torque statistics. It, it just it would be a very it would be a very difficult thing for most car buyers to engage with a commercial about how much torque a car has. And so because things like aesthetics and gadgets are much easier to understand, that's where car commercials focus. And the book explains that that's basically, I think, what's going on in public debates about the commander-in-chief test, that even if voters care about whether leaders have good judgment, it's, it's just kind of hard. It's like torque statistics. It's hard for them to know what that really means in practice. And so political campaigns, like car commercials, focus on the things that are easier to evaluate, which here is this relationship between hawkishness and perceived leadership strength. And let me just say, as one who has a very minimal understanding of what goes on under the hood of a car, I thought that was a brilliant metaphor in the book. Uh, I wonder if we could get into a couple of the case studies. And one in particular that you cite is the election of 2004. Uh, Iraq war is already pretty unpopular at this point, but yet George W. Bush is able to use that as political leverage, his support of kind of sticking to his guns against his you know, windsurfing opponent who uh, he argued tended to change positions. Right. So in 2004, um, the United States is involved in the war in Iraq. On balance, Americans don't think that Bush had handled the war well up to that point. So in that chapter, I go through a bunch of polling data on that subject. It shows just 43% of Americans think Bush has done a good job of handling the war. In general, you'd think that if a majority of Americans don't think you're handling the war well, that that wouldn't be an issue you'd put front and center in your political campaign. Like why, why would you highlight an unpopular issue in a national presidential race? The answer to this is that Bush's campaign manager, Ken Melman, thought that issues didn't really matter to voters. Um, he explicitly says in an interview after the election, quote, elections are usually about attributes, not issues. And what he means there is that when voters think about which presidential candidates they're going to elect, they're thinking about what kind of people they are, what kind of personal traits they have, and not necessarily where they stand on the issues. And Melman goes on to say that the attribute Bush had that was, quote, most important and relevant to voters was the fact that he was a strong leader. So in the rest of that chapter, I, I talk about how all of Bush's campaign advisors agree that their central message in the 2004 presidential campaign was not that Bush had done a good job of handling the Iraq war, but that he was a strong leader. And they actually determined that part of the way to demonstrate that he's a strong leader is to highlight that he is unwilling to bend to criticism of the way that he's handled the war. So by talking about how Bush is willing to, quote, stick to his guns in the face of public criticism, 
the Bush campaign turns what, what seems like on its face it would be a negative for them, his apparent mishandling of the Iraq war, into a strength that he's willing to stick to his guns. And then, as you mentioned, they use that as a contrast with John Kerry, who appears to be much more of a so-called flip-flopper, even though the, the exact issues on that that lead to Kerry's flip-flopping reputation are like subtle ways in which he's voting on defense spending amendments that are tied to Iraq war funding um, that appears in the public mind to be inconsistent behavior, which you know, ends up sinking Kerry's reputation for being a firm leader. So anyway, just the, the explicit nature of how Bush and his advisors are making this issue image trade-off, going out of their way to highlight an unpopular policy because they think it helps them cultivate reputations for leadership strength comes through really clearly in that case study, as well as many of the other cases that the book describes in which, especially when you get into the archival records behind the scenes of these presidential campaigns, just remarkably explicit and strategic about how they use foreign policy issues, even unpopular issues, to craft these reputations for leadership strength. I want to ask, too, about defense spending, which you mentioned earlier, and how that impacts this uh, issue image trade-off. One of the examples you point to in this regard that seems very clear is the election in 1960. And I, I have a follow-up question after we kind of talk about that case study, which is, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, president in the 1950s, works very hard to keep defense spending down. Obviously, as a five-star general, he is somewhat immune, perhaps, from criticisms that might sink a normal candidate. So my follow-up question to the election in 1960, as we discuss this, is if a candidate enters an election or office with a requisite image of strength ready, can they somehow break free of this logic of issue image trade-off? For sure. I, I think that is a real lesson of the Eisenhower presidency. Eisenhower was one of the most um, restrained presidents on foreign policy <clears throat> since World War II. He he goes out of his way to keep defense spending from growing, stays out of foreign military interventions for the most part, with the exception of uh, a brief intervention in Lebanon. And generally speaking, that, I mean, that, that appears to align with what voters say they want. One of the reasons Eisenhower can do that is that he enters the presidency with this sterling reputation for foreign policy competence. I mean, he, he was the guy who won, won World War II, at least in Europe. And so when people criticize him for being a weak leader, which many people tried to do, it just, it just wasn't going to take because his reputation for being a competent commander in chief had been ingrained over a decade of, in, the, in the public view. But, but of course, most presidential candidates don't, don't enter office with anything like that kind of reputation since Eisenhower, almost no presidents have had military experience, um, especially not the kinds of high-level military experience that would be relevant to national command decisions. And John F. Kennedy is a perfect example of that. When he runs for president in 1960, Kennedy, you know, he, he, has, he has served in the Navy during World War II. He actually is quite knowledgeable about foreign policy issues from his academic study and some of his service in the Senate, but he has no high-level experience handling international affairs, and he's going up against the Republican presidential nominee, Richard Nixon, who had made his career building a reputation for anti-communism, who had served as vice president for eight years under President Eisenhower, and thus has much more of a <clears throat> claim to being a competent commander-in-chief. And 
Kennedy's advisors know this. So, for example, there's a memorandum I quote from John Kenneth Galbraith, one of Kennedy's foreign policy advisors, who says, quote, Nixon's claim to vast experience is going to, in foreign policy is going to be our most difficult issue. So they're really thinking about how, how they are going to solve that problem. And as you note in your question, the strategy they came come up with here is to have Kennedy propose a large-scale military buildup. They know that this is unpopular on its face. According to public polls at the time, less than a quarter of Americans actually think the defense budget is too small. But Kennedy's advisors don't think that matters directly. So another of Kennedy's advisors, an MIT professor named Itiel de Solapool, says in a memorandum, quote, particular postures on issues will not directly affect many voters. The primary objective for Kennedy is to enhance his image by demonstrating his knowledge and competence. <clears throat> I should say as an aside here, I mean, I found it remarkable in these archives just how explicitly political advisors are sort of saying the quiet part out loud. I mean, here you have an advice. He's just saying, don't, don't, don't care. You should not care what voters want on the merits. Just do the thing that allows you to project an image of being competent. And the reason they thought that a proposal to raise defense spending would do this is that it allowed Kennedy to project an image of being this strong, vigorous leader. And to contrast that with the notion that the Eisenhower administration had been complacent because it had kept the defense budget constant and therefore ignored growing threats to the United States. Kennedy was going to stand up to those threats and he was going to, quote, get America moving again. And the defense spending plank of Kennedy's platform is, is really crucial to developing this image of a vigorous leader that that we associate with him today. I'll, I'll just say one last thing about that. Um, one of Kennedy's most famous lines in a speech comes from his inaugural address, in which he says voters should be willing to pay any price, bear any burden to defend U.S. national interests. And I mean, this is just an iconic line. And, and I think it really captures the vigor and vision of Kennedy's leadership. But the fact is, I, I submit that most people do not actually agree with that statement on its merits. Um, like, do, do we really think we should pay any price for advancing our foreign policy objectives? Indeed, as I mentioned, most voters don't think we should raise the defense budget at all. And, and I just think the, Kennedy's ability to, to take this position that was unpopular on its face uh, and turn it into a lasting image that resonates with American voters now, 60 years later, is just a very iconic example of how these issue image trade-offs shape presidential politics. And I thought that was a very interesting point as well. Lines like that are uh, tinged with historical romanticism, but it is very hard to picture a politician today uttering those lines in a way that doesn't sound completely uh, ridiculous. So let me ask you, you know, as you're aware, and as most of our listeners are, there's been a trend in political science scholarship and journalism talking about how since the 1990s, you know, politics has gone national, how down-ballot voting and partisan affiliation is really ruling the stoop uh, to the expense of all other issues. So a couple of questions for you here. One, throughout this research, you obviously designed your own surveys. How did you control for partisan affiliation in those? And then second, do you see a trend or a world in which partisan affiliation threatens to perhaps eclipse the logic of the issue image trade-off in a way that renders it moot? Yeah, those are great questions. 
There is a lot of evidence to support the trend that you spoke about. <clears throat> so, so just to highlight some other scholars work on this, there's, there's a lot of work out there that seeks to estimate what proportion of the American electorate could be considered swing voters, people who could plausibly vote for either party in a national race. And there are different ways to measure this, but most scholars agree that whereas in the 1970s or 80s, the proportion of Americans who were plausibly swing voters might have been 20 or 25 percent, that today it's gone down to the single digits. So it, it does look as though the strength or the pull of partisan loyalties in presidential voting and down ballot are stronger than ever before. But I don't think that necessarily changes the logic of the book's argument. And the reason for that is that so long as candidates believe that they can get any margin out of campaigning on foreign policy issues, we should expect them to scrape and claw for those advantages, no matter how small they are. If that helps them to win 10% of the electorate, great. If that helps them to win 1% of the electorate, that's still worth fighting for because particularly in today's age in which presidential elections are so reliably close, you need that 1%. And that 1% that movement, even in some individual states, could end up swinging uh, the outcome of the electoral college at the national level. So I, I think as long as candidates believe that making these issue image trade-offs gets the needle moving in a positive direction, that's all that really matters in order to explain why it is that they would make these issue image trade-offs. And I think um, the book attempts to show that that kind of behavior seems pretty consistent from the Kennedy election to the present day, um, which I think helps to, to indicate that um, it's not just being eclipsed by partisanship. Um, just to answer your question about the methods, um, of course, when we when we analyze survey data, you, you can just add statistical controls for, for partisanship. But in a more fundamental way, what I try to do in the book is show that all of the basic patterns I document hold for Republicans and independents and Democrats, even if we analyze those groups of people separately. And they hold for men and they hold for women and they hold for white voters and non-white voters, college educated, non-college educated. I mean, essentially whatever uh, demographic splits you wanna impose on the data, the patterns will hold for individual subsets. So for example, one chapter of the book shows how when presidential candidates take more hawkish positions on nearly any foreign policy issue on which we have data, voters seem to think that they would be stronger leaders. And by showing that those patterns hold, when we divide the data into subsets, I can show that that isn't just some kind of thought process that only affects Republicans or only affects men or something like that. It appears to be something that's pretty generalizably wired into voters' brains. And then, of course, we could talk about how sensible that is or what its consequences are. But I think we can be pretty confident that that's something that's generalizable and not just the product of a particular party or demographic group. And another question, do you see this as strictly an American political phenomenon? Or is there evidence that this might apply internationally as well? I think there's evidence it applies internationally, or, or at the very least, we could come up with cases where the logic seems to apply internationally. I should note that the, the book is about U.S. 
foreign policy. And so I don't document uh, as systematically how this affects overseas. And, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if this kind of logic was held, held more in an American case than others, particularly because America is expected more than other countries to police global issues generally, and U.S. presidents, therefore, have to cultivate an image of being able to manage global politics in a way that many other states' executives might not. So so I, th I think it's perfectly plausible to say this might be less of an issue in other countries, but there are plenty of examples where you might think it would be the case. One of them that I talk about in the book is the way that Boris Johnson handled Brexit. Um, li listeners will probably remember that when Brexit was a live issue, he was always very close on the merits in public polling, and especially when Boris Johnson ran for re-election. On balance, it looked like, if anything, a slight majority of Britons uh, had soured on the issue. So ordinarily, you would not think that an issue that divisive would be something that leaders would choose to orient their re-election campaigns around. Like You normally look for issues on which you have a dominant position in the polls, but as listeners might recall, it Brexit was just essentially the the be all end all of Johnson's campaign for re-election, and he ends up winning by the largest margin of victory in modern British history. So, so why is that? Like, how can you run on a divisive issue and yet win such a decisive margin? I think a large part of that is that Johnson exploited the same kind of issue crafting, image crafting logic that let's say John F. Kennedy did, that even if British voters were quite divided on the merits of Brexit, they liked the idea that Johnson was willing to stand up for British interests and put Britain first and push back against European bureaucrats. And and that, that allowed Johnson, I think, to use a, an issue that was divisive on the merits to craft a reputation that was quite advantageous to him in explaining why he, he'd be a better representative of Britain than his political rivals at the time. And my last question for you, we are obviously in an election year. So if you could, based on some of the research you conducted, the insights you gained, what advice would you give to listeners or voters about how they should pay attention to foreign policy discussions in this year's election? That is a great question. And um, and I will say there, there are all sorts of signs of this kind of behavior, at least so far in the Republican primary. I think the most obvious example of that would be the way that every GOP frontrunner has promised to attack Mexico in order to combat <laughs> drug cartels. Um, that is a quite unusual position to take historically. Um, polls suggest voters would be quite skeptical of that, particularly if the Mexican government did not participate, which is impossible to imagine. So that, that seems like the kind of issue on which ordinarily you, you do a bit of head scratching to ask, you know, not just why one candidate, but why Trump and Haley and Ramaswamy and DeSantis all promised to attack Mexico. And I think I think the, the, the answer there is that this is a way of showing that they're going to be they're going to be tough leaders and they're going to do more than Biden did in order to combat the drug problem. And so that I think that's a pretty clear issue image trade off. I think it, it perhaps a more high stakes level, uh, the rhetoric that GOP candidates have been issuing towards China is alarming. So Nikki Haley says that China is leading a new global axis of evil. 
Uh, Ramaswamy has called China our top enemy. Um, Ron DeSantis says that Washington should treat Beijing as it treated the Soviets. It's very clear that the the GOP presidential contenders are framing U.S.-China relations as a new Cold War. It is also clear from public polling data that voters aren't thinking in those terms. So I think that's the kind of place in which these incentives to take tough positions on issues can really ratchet U.S. foreign policy in a in a direction at the very least um, uh, could have uh, concerning consequences. So, so then your question is, what do we do about that? I think there are basically three things, three ways in which parties and candidates and voters can try to mitigate the distortive impact of the commander chief test. So for parties, well, one thing parties can do is try to nominate candidates with military experience and particularly high level military experience that seems to resonate with voters in a way that helps candidates to co uh, convey that they're competent at military decision-making and would therefore reduce the pressure to distort their public policy, foreign policy platforms in order to craft those reputations. So that'd be kind of like the Eisenhower strategy that you mentioned, mentioned earlier. That, that's one thing parties can do. One thing that candidates can do is uh, talk tough in ways that don't require supporting hawkish views. So one of the things that we've seen in recent elections, which is pretty interesting, is a number of candidates. Donald Trump was one, and then Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would be examples on the Democratic side. We've taken very hostile positions in excoriating America's foreign policy establishment. And so rather than saying that they're going to stand up to America's enemies in some cases, they're essentially presenting America's past leaders as their opponents, standing up to them. And I, I think that's actually a pretty effective way of trying to use belligerent rhetoric to demonstrate your personal toughness without uh, taking hawkish policy positions. Obviously, there, there are downsides to that too, particularly undermining faith in American institutions. But that 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 is one thing candidates can think about. But I think the, I mean, the, the most the most effective things that voters and the media and candidates can do in order to escape these uh, processes are first to be much more vigilant in asking for the details about these hawkish policies. So, for example, you know, when GOP candidates are talking about attacking Mexico, like what is that going to mean? Um, what ha what do we do when the cartels don't surrender on the first day of that operation? Or, are we going to stay in northern Mexico for a year, five years, 10 years? Where is that going to go? And I think that asking those kind of follow-up questions is useful for helping to reorient conversations about commanders-in-chief away from these sort of superficial projections of leadership strength onto command of the details, onto questions about good judgment. And I think that that can help to attenuate some of the problems that the book documents. The, the last thing that I think we can consider in order to help um, attenuate the impacts of these issue image trade-offs is maybe that vo voters and pundits might just place less emphasis on deciding who's got the right stuff to be commander-in-chief. I mean, you can understand why we place so much attention on that topic, um, you know, evaluating leaders' personal traits is a lot more vivid. And maybe it makes just for better television and radio debate 
than arguing over the merits of policy issues. And, and of course, it, it's totally reasonable for people to want to have a competent commander in chief. I mean, who, who wouldn't want that? But I think part, part of what I hope the book conveys to its readership is that there are real consequences to personalizing foreign policy debates in these ways. And in particular, that can help to explain why Americans are, are consistently frustrated by how costly and expansive their foreign policy has been for decades. And so, so in some issue, I think the, 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 the last and perhaps simplest takeaway from the book is that if voters stuck to the issues when deciding who'd be the best commander in chief, they might end up being better off. You certainly left myself and I think all voters this year with a lot to think about. I really appreciate you being here to, to share this wonderful research. I sincerely hope uh, anyone listening goes out and reads this book. So thank you very much, Jeff. Hey, thanks. That was a great interview. For New Books Network, this is Sam Cantor. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.